Sorry. So for instance, if you add five pounds of muscle mass, but you do not condition that tissue, you're accommodating internally, right? Because you just added more mass and now it's less conditioned. So that's once again, a problem. But if people just think more muscles better, you could make someone more jacked physically, but they're actually, their work capacity just went down. Greetings and salutations, Mobs and Mo's listeners. This is Drew and Alex. We're back again for another week of conversation. This week we have on. This is a fun one. Uh, we got Taylor Starch, and we discuss it a little more once the actual episode starts, but he is here as a direct result of some Instagram drama uh, surrounding a particular post, but we discuss that later. So we'll leave it to that conversation. Taylor has his bachelor's in health and exercise science and health promotion from Colorado State, where he was on the cycling team and competed at the national level. Since then, he has accumulated roughly 15 years of experience in the fitness industry, everything from personal training to running his own company to now obviously tactical. And he has spent those last six years in the tactical strength and conditioning world, both with Air Force Special Warfare and now with the 56th Fighter Wing out in Phoenix. He also has an astonishingly extensive list of professional certifications. He's trying to catch them all, I think. And <laughs> if you check out his social media presence, he's got lots of good stuff on there, but you'll quickly realize that he is a big trail runner as well. Yeah. And the nature, I mean, you talked about the Instagram piece, which I won't double tap because we do go into more detail in the actual episode, but the the nature of the conversation and the reason we had Taylor on was, was less an interview and more a chat about the the prevalence of powerlifting within tactical strength and conditioning is that a good thing is that a bad thing what does it really all mean a lot of this was driven by the comment section of that particular post because i think if you want to get a good pulse on what the strength and conditioning industry thinks about anything read the instagram comment section of a post that happens to make a stance or be inflammatory uh, and that's kind of uh, the nature of the Mops and Mo's Instagram, I think. So, yeah. And I think there's a there's a little bit of a good flavor on this one. Certainly, it will make powerlifters mad and probably plenty of strength coaches in general. But the the uniqueness of somebody in strength and conditioning who comes to it from the endurance side and then figured out strength stuff rather than somebody who came to it from the strength side and then figured out endurance stuff. We dig into that a little bit with Taylor a little bit later in the episode, but I think there's there's serious value in making sure we keep that perspective in the conversation. Well, and I think too, like, I don't know, maybe this is just me. The whole reason why we started this in the first place is to just get coaches thinking and not even just thinking, but like thinking about thinking. And that's kind of the nature of this conversation that we have with Taylor. Like if you're a coach in the tactical space and you are not, critiquing your own stuff and and thinking about how your stuff is being carried out by the population you're working with, you're, you're just missing the mark. And so hopefully this episode, along with some of the other episodes that we've done, it might seem on the surface as though it's a critique or a criticism, but really what it is, is a discussion about how to be more of a critical thinker and how to be a better practitioner so that the product that you're putting out ultimately ends up being a better product. So yeah, like you said, this was a fun one. And before we launch into the episode, I want to do one quick disclaimer. There were some internet issues on Taylor's end. We're recording this intro immediately after the conversation. I have not yet edited it. He's in Phoenix. The Wi-Fi sucks in Phoenix. Phoenix is not a good place to live. Apparently. Sorry, Taylor. But uh, I will I will be testing my editing skills next week on this one as I edit it. And hopefully it comes out with something relatively smooth. I don't think it should be too bad, but apologies in advance if there's any choppiness in a few sections. Enjoy. So this all this all came about a little bit strangely. I posted about something unrelated to all this, and Nate told me you were gonna give a talk at TSAC related to something else I had posted about it previously. So that's when I discovered your page, started following you. And you had a couple of posts about the like influence of powerlifting on training kind of stuff that got my gears turning. That's where the post came from. And obviously we'll, we'll chat about where all that went, but I think, I think that is where like I discovered your stuff and the conversation started. Well, here I, I have the post 
Yeah. I'll, I'll read here. So I'll read the post for context. So this, you put this up, Alex, you put this up. Oh yeah. Before you do, this is real fast context. Cause I know there's actually like a pretty big difference between who the Instagram audience is and who the podcast audience is. Those are two entirely separate populations. <laughs> so if we got a, if we have like podcast listeners who are completely lost during this, I apologize. Cause a lot of this is going to be like internet drama conversations. I mean, I would hope that they would know what Instagram is though. Maybe. Yeah, but they they won't have seen this. Like a lot of well, that's why I'm going to read. So I'm going to read the post, and then we're just going to kind of go from there. So for folks that have no clue what we're talking about, by the way, Taylor Starch with the three popcorn frog face tea eyeball comment. <laughs> I know exactly which meme you're referring to, Kermit the Frog, baby. Okay, so dude, pop- I love just being a watchful guardian in the comments, just waiting. <laughs> when you see a post, you know it's going to be a firestorm. Just you just sit and wait. I love that. Okay, so here we go. It's it's three slides. First one, powerlifting teaches tactical professionals the wrong lessons. Second slide, for powerlifters, their sport-specific skill work and their strength and conditioning are the same thing. Third slide, tactical professionals are not, not in red, are not training to max specific lifts, so their training shouldn't look that way. So let's provide some context. Go. I don't know, Alex. You want to lead this off, or should I? <laughs> yeah, I can. I can lay down a little bit of like context slash, I guess, nuance because it is fair to say that Instagram is not the most nuanced place, and I am certainly. I mean, occasionally... isn't nuance the word of twenty twenty three? It's. I think it's it, gaslighting. Nuance is the top word of twenty twenty three. Probably, I could be accused, and I am occasionally guilty of like intentionally oversimplifying things to be a little bit instigatory to get some engagement and some conversation going. Yes. For like the power lifters in the audience, many of them are my friends. I think they're great. I don't have anything against powerlifting specifically, and I might post the exact same thing, but sub in CrossFit or sub in distance running or whatever, because a lot of people took it as this like brutal, crazy attack on powerlifting. And all I'm saying is you shouldn't approach all training as though everybody needs to be a powerlifter to get good at whatever else they're doing. And yes, I understand that there is more to powerlifting than just squatting, benching, and deadlifting. I understand that. And it's a great sport. It's not my sport, but people love it. And that's but awesome. Hold on. Let me interrupt you because there's not much more to powerlifting than squatting, benching, and deadlifting. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek because by definition, the sport is squatting, <laughs> benching, and deadlifting. And sure, you could get into the nuance and the different systems around like, hey, we're going to do it, you know, triphasic or we're going to do 531 or like people fall into their camps. I think the inflammatory aspect of the post is that for a lot of strength coaches, and this may make me some enemies, but for a lot of strength coaches, they don't have the capacity to critically think through prescribing resistance training if you force them to step back from squatting, benching and deadlifting as like the the three amigos or the three musketeers of resistance training done i want to i want to give taylor a chance because he obviously like i said i started with stuff taylor was talking about so i want to let taylor lay down the foundation he was talking about before we continue this gets tricky and mainly because you know when we start talking about domains whether it's powerlifting kettlebells crossfit you know a lot of people tie up their identity in those Mm -hmm. particular domains so Kind of like when you throw down a, hey, you know, operators or tactical athletes aren't professional power lifters. Well, shoot, people are going to have an emotional response to that. But what we need to do is you got to kind of step back and think about kind of how strength training got even, you know, kind of started back in the day. And the fact is, you know, when it comes to strength training, what we've done for decades is we've said, wow, um, power lifters are really strong. Well, we should do what they do. Olympic weightlifters are really powerful and they're also strong. So we should do what they do. And, you know, our knowledge of strength and conditioning, if we boil down, a lot of it came from the powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting in the Soviets back, you know, in the eighties, seventies and sixties. And then also the golden age of bodybuilding that dictated a lot of the knowledge. In fact, most of the knowledge that dictates most training nowadays. But I think the problem is, is those were individual silos, right? And it's no surprise that anyone who's in the tactical world is not simply strength training. They are working cardiovascular training. They're working work capacity, all, all that different stuff. So the thing is all these systems were created with the specific goal of sport, right? 
of bodybuilding to add as much, much muscle mass or muscular tissue uh, with proportions, you know, powerlifting, CrossFit, what it might be. So the biggest thing is that's a problem because if I just try to increase power lift, well, that all the rules of powerlifting, everything was created with the goal of absolute strength, right? Just pure absolute strength or decreasing the absolute to maximal strength deficit, right? But the problem is, is guys in Westside Barbell weren't attempting to run 10 miles with a ruck or do anything like that. So that's a big problem is what people don't understand is our knowledge of strength and conditioning is, okay, this is what powerlifters do to get strong. They're the strongest. So we have to follow their lead. That's not wrong. Olympic weightlifters are the most powerful. So this is what we do. But the problem is we know that when, when we, when we combine training into concurrent training, everything changes because you have limited ability to recover. You have limited stress that you can apply to certain domains. So if you put your stress currency into strength training, well, where are you going to have leftover for cardiovascular training? Right? So the problem is, is we took, we said, wow, powerlifting is really good. And then we just said, well, here's what pro runners do. And then we smash it all together. The mm -hmm. problem is you can't do that. You, you, you don't have enough stress to get better at everything at once. Yeah. I think, I mean, for me, again, back to kind of the powerlifting discussion, things like Prilipin's chart come to mind, which for folks that don't know, like that's the stereotypical, this many reps at this percentage of one rep max elicits this response, you know, boom, boom, boom to your point. And we've talked about this a lot on this podcast with Alec and with other guys, this idea of like concurrent training and you can't, and, and I think this gets to what Alex was getting at in the post. Like you can't just take the, the laws we'll call them of powerlifting and slap that into your strength training bucket and then take the laws of marathon training and slap that into your endurance bucket. And then somehow hope that that program is successful for the athlete. I think that, I mean, the way I interpreted the post and I'm interested to like get into the weeds of how, you know, upset people got, but the way I interpreted the post was like the, the, the rules of powerlifting and like the laws of training in the world of powerlifting are written such that you can max those three lifts on a given day, because that is the sport. So if you're training only follows those rules. The expectation is you're trying to peak on a given day with those three lifts. And that's where it gets a little bit wonky when you start to add in, you know, the, the running piece that you talked about, the work capacity piece, the skill, you know, sports skill, combat, whatever piece. I giggled when I saw how pissed off people got by just making that statement. So, you know, but I think there's still another thing that that there's another layer to the the post or just the conversation in general is the fact that when, when people are talking about strength training, they're talking about it as if it's strength is one thing and they're, they're focused on what is more demonstration in almost what your biology or your, what, what you have in your system can display. So the problem is we're taking all these pattern exercises, deadlifts, squats, overhead press, and we're focused on these external things, which are basically an output from your nervous system that grabs all the biology you have available, whether that's connective tissue and muscle. And then we're focused on the demonstration rather than thinking strength, strength training as adaptation, right? So when people think of training, they think, oh, if I get deadlift better, I, I win. That's, that, that's focused on an external output. And that's focused on organizing self-organization into a pattern exercise. And I, I think that's, I still think that's thinking about training as powerlifters or the Olympic weightlifters did back in the seventies and eighties. I think that it's people are caught up in the external demonstration of the biological phenomena of strength. And they're not thinking about what actually makes strength. It's the connective tissue. It's the available joint space. It's the architecture. It's the muscle being able to output force. Those are the internal environments or inputs that dictate the output. See, we've gotten so lost in squat, hinge, push, and pull that we're focused on the output, which is a pattern exercise. We should be focusing on the determinants of strength, which to me are the biological things inside of you. I know that I open a can of worms, but I think that simply beyond the, well, powerlifting is a sport and you should, it's, 
I think there's another layer to this too. I'll throw in really quickly, and this is a common refrain on this podcast, but Goodhart's law, when the, when the measure becomes the goal, it ceases to be a good measure. Oh, like people treat squat bench and deadlift as the ultimate measures of strength. And so if you have made those, the ultimate measures, of course, the most specific training for those things will get you the most output on those measures. But who said those were the best, most relevant measures for whatever the person's goal was. Yeah. There's, there's an argument about like, which movements can you load the heaviest for the greatest, like axial skeleton loading, whatever. But if, if they don't actually tie to whatever the person's goal was, you might be training for something that isn't producing the outcomes you're looking for in the first place. You've kind of played yourself with how you measure strength too. Right. I mean, strength training is all about warding off accommodation, right? I mean, that's the goal of strength training is to ward it off. So the problem is you don't accommodate externally. So what happens is you might have someone who trap our deadlifts 400 pounds, and then they say, well, I've got to get stronger. I've got to get stronger. And they spend another eight to 12 months putting 50 pounds on their trap bar, maybe a hundred if they're lucky. But the problem is on the internal level, they're accommodating. So they're actually putting less energy into tissues. And what happens as we put less energy into tissues over time, like those muscles are going to not be able to maintain themselves. So, and then what we see is then we start seeing a lack of range of motion. We start to see poor ability to stress stiff and connective tissue. So once again, it, I think people can't get out of their brain, especially as strength coaches. We're so conditioned that more weight on a bar or more weight on a dumbbell or kettlebell, we are, everything has to get better. That's not necessarily true. You can add 50 pounds to someone's bench press and they have more shoulder pain. They have more issues and they're actually accommodating, not adapting anymore. And I think that's very important because people assume if bench press goes up, I'm adapting, accommodating, and you're putting less energy in, which is the opposite goal of training. We're supposed to put energy in and get adaptation out. Mm -hmm. Are we okay to read some comments or is that too close to, uh, because I'm scrolling through now and it's just some of the arguments people have are pretty funny. Yeah. I think, I think that's where we're going here for at least a, a portion of this discussion. And I am pretty close hold with DMS. Like if anybody's DM me before and I wanted to share it, you, you probably noticed that I asked permission before I did that. Cause those are private messages. But if you comment, you specifically put your opinion out in like a public setting. And I don't think we're going to read usernames here necessarily, but no, obviously the comment section is public. If anybody wants to go read it, but I do think there are a few kind of themes that popped up in the comments that I thought were worth talking about that I want to break down a little bit. Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's keep it broad. Yeah. Do you want to, you want to pick the first one? You want me to, I will. So the, the one that stood out to me and, and you included it in the notes is that, and I've seen this happen for the entirety of the time that I've worked in this space in the tactical space is is coaches saying certain exercises are a necessity for tactical athletes um i like my position on that in my early days i could probably have gotten behind that argument because i didn't know anything different and i probably was gonna sit there and say that squats and benches and bench presses and deadlifts made sense because you can load a squat heavier than you can load a front squat you know blah blah blah, blah. I, I think the hill that I will die on now is that there is no singular exercise that is any more sports specific to a combat scenario than any other, if that makes sense. And this gets to like some of the conversations we've had in this podcast before. Like we think that we have to do a back squat. Well, what if the athlete doesn't like a back squat? What if they like to front squat? That's fine. Like it, there's no scenario in combat where a back squat versus a front squat makes any difference at all. If putting in a front squat has them being more compliant with your program and gets them stronger in that movement pattern, then awesome. Maybe that's too black and white of a, of a position to take, but like, I don't think there are any exercises that are more sports specific than any other, unless you guys disagree. I'll lay down one thing that frustrates me all the time, and then we'll hand it over to Taylor for his opinion. But Drew, you've trained pilots and you're currently training medical professionals, essentially. Taylor, you've done special warfare and you're currently training pilots. Whoa, pilots, PJs. Shout out PJs. There you go. Sorry. And then I, like I've touched on a lot, but I've touched on like 
everything from analysts to tuba players, to cooks, to <laughs> infantrymen, there, there's a huge variety in tactical. And all of these discussions are like premised on a foundational assumption that every tactical professional's outcomes you want are the same and that they're coming at it with like a relatively the same level of preparedness to train. And I don't think either of those assumptions are true. They come with different backgrounds and they're looking for different things. I mean, so two things I think of right away. Number one is we got to get this out of the way because it's important. And I don't think a lot of strength coaches want to admit this is true. Most people we work with are not at the top of the ladder when it comes to physically um, whether that's maximal strength, whether that's aerobically, whether that's range of motion wise. So I don't think a lot of strength coaches have ever coached like a world champion before who has, who is at the limit of adaptation to the mm -hmm. point where they can do things that make them worse. If I'm being honest, it's a rare day where I've met someone who has accommodated to the point where if you do workout a, they get better, faster, stronger. If you do workout B, they get worse. Most strength coaches and trainers and therapists have never been at that point because we have someone who maybe has horrendous range of motion. So actually mobility work is going to benefit them. So you do anything and six months later, they're like, wow, I feel better. Or you have maybe a runner who is very, um, who has never done some serious strength training. So you have them do squat hinge, you know, squat and hinge. You pick random sets and reps because we all know most coaches are making that stuff up anyway, and they get better. <laughs> so you think your program's the best. Or, you know, someone's deconditioned, uh, they're the power lifter who struggles aerobically. So you have them do zone two and magically six months later, they're awesome. Well, so the problem is we think everything works because most people are in a position where any inputs are going to make them better because they're not at the limits of what they can do biologically or just in terms of their sport or skill. So the when, when we work with maybe someone who's elite, maybe someone has a 500 pound deadlift. Well, now the ball changes because you can do things that make that person worse. And the biggest thing to understand is what is the rate limiting factors? So if I input maximal strength training to athlete A, it can make them faster if that's the rate limiting factor. If I do it with athlete B and they actually less lack the ability to stress stiffen, and maybe that's a connective tissue loading problem, that athlete might get worse. So what's a limiting factor for athlete A won't be the same for athlete B. And that's why training is always individualized. But the problem is most conversations we have on the internet and all this are completely petty because we're working with people. That's why everyone thinks their stuff works or their, oh man, I've got this awesome squat program or cycle. Dude, you had someone who hasn't squatted in the last four and a half years because they've had back pain and now they feel better. Of course, their numbers are going to go up. See, people have never run into accommodations, so they don't understand like how to look for it, what to even, because their only thought is if bar goes up, that person is adapting and acquiring all the things they need. Once again, if I need more capsular space at my shoulder, a bench press cannot give me that because my shoulder doesn't know what a bench press is. It only feels force and it feels energetics, which is the demand of metabolics or the aerobic system. You guys get that. My shoulder doesn't know whether it's going through a bench press, whether it's going through a max end range uh, mobility exercise. It doesn't know whether it's doing a dip. It doesn't know whether it's doing a kettlebell press. So we have to ask ourselves, number one, is if this person is an average person, everything's going to work. And we just got to be honest. Number two, what is the rate limiting factor? Because that's going to matter to everyone, but it's going to matter as someone gets more elite. Do you want to talk about... I don't want to reference the comments specifically, but you know, the, the army's first strength coach was a world champion powerlifter. Take, take that one for a ride. It was a pretty specific comment and I think it deserves a pretty specific answer. It talked about the army's first strength coach and, and like there's a clear assumption from the context of the post that he's talking about Donnie Bigham and he's talking about the tactical athlete performance center down at Fort Benning. And first I think this episode will probably be coming out right after the history of army fitness episode. And that might provide some like context on like how much more there is to this story than yeah, like, one person. That is not true. <laughs> so, and Donnie's great and stuff, but the, the first strength coach claim is a little bit interesting, but I'm going to, going to briefly reference a study titled impact of two types of fitness programs on soldier physical fitness. 
it's easy to find if you search Donald Bigham. He's one of the authors on the study among several. And, and they looked at officer candidate school soldiers and they had like a control group that did normal army PT. And then they had a study group that used the tactical athlete performance center. And this kind of comes back to some of my issues with assuming that what every soldier always needs is more strength training, because that's, I mean, there's more methodology in the study that you can read if you're a huge nerd and you want to, but one would hope that professionalized strength and conditioning compared to quote unquote, normal army training, you would get better results across numerous domains of fitness. And what they looked at were like changes in performance on the army combat fitness test between the tactical athlete performance center group and the traditional group. And the TAPC group did perform better on the deadlift. And then they performed about the same on the power throw and the traditional PT group performed better on everything else. Hanoi's push up, sprint, dry carry, leg tuck, two mile run. And that's scary to me. Like that's a concern, right? And like, I've been there, I don't know what Drew's seen, but I've, I've seen it where I get, like, I see a bunch of results of like an awesome program, a bunch of soldiers followed and they got better at like the strength stuff and they got worse at some of the conditioning stuff. And we we've seen that happen with like the insertion of strength coaches into various environments at various times over the last couple of decades. Like we can't, it, it's strength and conditioning for a reason. And they're at a low enough level that you should be able to get them better at a lot of things at the same time. It's not like a high five situation if they got better at the deadlift and then worse at everything else. I don't know that that concerns me. I have two thoughts on this because it's, it is something I think about a lot and it's something I've seen a lot, especially within tactical strength and conditioning. My first thought is that for strength coaches, you have to ask yourself the question is, is my 20 years of experience, 20 years of experience, or is it one year of experience repeated 20 times? Because I didn't have the environment that allowed me to develop and grow, you know, and for a lot of sports coaches, that's quite frankly, the nature of the beast. Like you're kind of feet against the flames for the entirety of your career. So you, you, you don't have the space to, to grow as a coach. That's not a knock on coaches. It's more a knock on the industry, I think. But the second point, and this was a bit of an inflection for, for me, as I got into this, I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of years in professional sport, collegiate sport. I went straight from graduate school into tactical strength and conditioning. So I came at it completely raw, did not have any predisposition towards this is how I would train a football team, or this is how I would train, you know, a basketball team. I think the mistake that a lot of strength coaches in tactical strength and conditioning make is that the tactical athlete is a fundamentally different flavor of athlete. It, it, and I've said this before, it's not a football player in camouflage. So if your career was in professional sport, and then you come over to the army or the Navy or the air force or the Marine Corps, and you take what worked in that environment, you're doing a disservice to this athlete. You would do better to spend time looking at things like hybrid training, like CrossFit, like these modalities that are taking different components of fitness and mashing them together in such a way that we're producing athletes that can snatch 300 pounds and run a five minute mile. It's not to say that every tactical athlete needs to snatch 300 pounds and run a five minute mile, but if the methodology that's allowing athletes to get to that point, if you're not looking at that because it's not what you did at university X, Y, Z, then you're missing the mark. So I think that's where I get frustrated when people reference like, oh, you know, coach X, Y, Z was like the pioneer and he was a powerlifter. Well, great. Like when he started with whatever unit he was at, he had zero years of experience and then he built himself up from there. And I'll get off my soapbox now and turn it back over to you guys. I saw some nodding from Taylor, so I'll give him a chance to respond before we go off on another tangent. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think, so I come at this from a unique perspective. So like you said, Drew, you know, a lot of guys are going to come into tactical from maybe, you know, D1 sports uh, as a strength coach. Maybe their background is football. So a lot of strength coaches have a wonderful perspective of strength. Um, it's, you know, it's what they love and they remember back to high school football, maybe a D one baseball. And so they, they have that as their background. I came to it. So my background is with endurance sports. So I'm one of the rare coaches who actually kind of got into the strength world a little bit later because I was with USA cycling in high school and then 
cycling in college and stuff like that. So I was exposed to the endurance and you could call it the conditioning before delving into maximal strength, deadlifts, cleans, kettlebells, Turkish get-ups and all that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's very common in the endurance world that, you know, we understand that we're, we're not, we're not, we, you know, I, as a cyclist, you, you care about riding your bike fast. You don't care about squats. Um, some do, but the whole point was you got in the gym, you got out and you didn't spend much time there. And I think what I learned is it doesn't take long to get strong. It doesn't take, you don't have to train necessarily that often to failure. And sometimes you can train at low percentages or max. So there was things I learned as an endurance athlete that maybe I only did legs once per week. Now, what, what I'm getting at is that it's a little bit opposite when you think about most strength coaches, they're coming at from, they lifted five to six times a week mm-hmm. and they crushed it. And then anytime conditioning, it was all the high intensity, right? But once again, that is their silo. And then all of a sudden they might learn about endurance training. But the problem is we only have so much stress we can spend in a week. If I said, can you get stronger in an exercise in 10 reps? I, I would argue, yes. Like, like, let's pick an exercise, the beloved Nordic. Could you do 10 reps one time a week and get stronger? Well, yes. How long would it take, how long would it take to do 10 reps? Less than five minutes. So now that is really uncomfortable to say to the strength and conditioning community to say, Hey, what if your strength training only took 10 minutes and then you left the rest for building an aerobic engine? people lose their minds. And then what if I said, Hey, so you just spent about 45 minutes trying to build your muscular tissue or hypertrophy, your pecs and triceps, because we all love getting jacked, but how much stress have you put into your hip capsule this week to develop the internal rotation you need to actually have access to more tissue. So you don't accommodate in your squat, because we should be thinking about every time we go into the gym, we should bring a new shoulder, a new hip, new connective tissue, we should have access to more because remember biology is going to dictate neurology, which is an output into the external environment. But so I'm losing my train of thought, but at the end of the day, that's, that's what I'm thinking about is the fact that if we think about strength training, the goal is not demonstration. It's not fatigue. It is to adapt. So we have signal, we have signals that we send. And when we send those signals, our body is going to adapt as long as we hit intensity. And we know intensity is based on mathematical facts. It's not a feeling. So if I send a signal in one set, do I get more signal because I do it two to three more sets? No is the answer. It, it depends. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's theoretically not. Now we could sit here and argue for days and say, well, yeah, if I do a second set, I'm going to get two more effective reps. But let's think about it. If my goal is simply maximal, uh, like, you know, sarcomerogenesis of my hamstrings set one rep, acquire the adaptation, not waste any stress. And I could go work on my zone two for 60 minutes. And then I would have enough energy to what maybe fire a bullet because my hip capsule hasn't been trained since 1995 <laughs> because people only think about the trainable bits as muscle, right? To me, I believe you can train active tissue or it. Obviously we all bias it. And no one's talking about the joint uh, encapsular level of any type of training. So I, 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 people can't picture strength training without eight to 12 exercises uh, and five to eight reps or 15 per exercise, right? Like what would be a normal upper body day? Push, pull, bench, dumbbell bench, um, triceps, you know, think, the list goes on. Why is it not I need to work on the capacity of my nervous system to discharge force in a bench press? So instead of thinking I'm trying to get better at bench press, you should be thinking I'm trying to use the bench press to display and discharge force so I can tell my biology and teach it how to discharge force. I don't care about bench press. I care about using the bench press as a tool to adapt. But everyone's eyes are on squat, hinge, push, pull in the external pattern environment. We should not be focused on self-organizing and putting constraints on training. We should be focused on putting stress and energy into tissues to yield adaptations. That's just my crazy opinion. Now, that doesn't mean every exercise needs to be one set or one rep. But if you send the signal, you send the signal. That's just the name of the game when it comes to strength training. Well, and that's why, you know, we've talked about this before as well. Like, if you construct a program correctly, 
it should, the program should signal to you, the coach, when adaptation has occurred and when you can make those changes. If you're just arbitrarily following a percentage of a random one rep max, because that's what you know and you're comfortable with, you're not actually paying attention to the adaptation piece of it. You're, you're just tracking the expression piece. And I, and I think Taylor, to your point, like, especially with tactical athletes, because they're so time constrained and because at the end of the day, it's, it's the combat piece that we're after. You mentioned bench press being a tool. It can be a different tool for different athletes. You don't have to be married to the squat bench and deadlift, which I think gets back to what the point of the post was. It's like powerlifting is a way. It does not have to be the way. And I wonder if coaches get so married to that concept because they legitimately think it's right or because it's just all that they know. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm just kind of throwing it out there for coaches to challenge themselves. I think it's both. And I think it's because it always works until they, until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, they keep throwing more volume, more exercises, more variations at it until they full, like, it's almost like they're holding their nervous system hostage and say, you need to give me 10 more pounds in my squat, but they do not realize what they're sacrificing in their internal environment. So if I asked you, if you had a tactical athlete, what if to gain that hundred pounds, they lost segmentation of L3, L4, and L5. So they can't distribute load through L3, L4, L5. So was that a good adaptation for our operator? The answer is no. Quiz question. Well, I'm sure someone could argue like, well, are they in pain? Uh, but in my opinion, okay, so you rob Peter to pay Paul. So yeah, mm -hmm. you could say he's able to display maximal strength in a trap bar deadlift at a hundred more pounds, but now you've lost segmentation of L3, L4, L5. All of a sudden your connective tissue is going to have an increased cost. So now the cost is higher. So now what's going to happen is if you keep trying to just increase the deadlift, I like to think of it like this. You guys like good old fast and furious movies. Dude, I just saw <laughs> there's like today. 12 of them. I just saw a thing today about there's, how like there's like Vin, 12 of them. Vin Diesel has superpowers now. Like he's going into space. Like it's just become Dude. a parody of itself. Sorry, not, Dude, not I, I want it to, at first I fought it and then I just want it to keep going. I want them to battle <laughs> dinosaurs. I, I want I want to see everything. I want to see Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn walk out and battle Vin Diesel. I'm down for it. I hated it and I resisted, but I changed my mind. Oh, to get that. to my point, so in those movies, they have their race cars, and then they put a nitrous oxide kit, and then they punch the button in the race, and boom. Uh, but, but the point is, I want you to picture now we take an old 1972, like, jalopy, and then we put that nitrous oxide kit on. Like, there's no way that engine can handle that nitrous oxide. It would blow up the engine. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is the fact that I want you guys to think about the trap bar deadlift. Let's say we take the trap bar and we increase the nervous system's capacity to discharge force. So now your trap bar deadlift went from 400 to 500. Every strength coach is like, oh my gosh, look at my athlete, so much stronger, better, faster. Well, what could happen is I want you to think that the connective tissue, let's say the low back, the lumbar spine, L1 through L5, and it just stays the same. We know that I'm gonna be honest, I've trained too many people, assessed too many people, they would lose segmentation most of the time if they're not doing anything to offset it or to develop range at those tissues. Because the deadlift does not give you everything magically just because we invented it. But your connective tissue and your capsular tissues at the low back haven't increased because you didn't spend specific training and stress to progressively overload them and adapt them. Because you just did your little foam rolling and mobility flows that don't change biological tissue. They make you feel better, but they don't change tissue. The problem is now connective tissue and capsular tissue says I can handle 400 pounds of force, but now your deadlifts up at 500. And then what happens is over weeks, months, and years, you start to internally accommodate and then your back starts hurting. And then you start dry needling it. You start foam rolling it. And we would never in a million years guess because no one's thinking about anything except for weight on bar gets heavier. It's better. And maybe muscular tissue, AKA if we get, you know, if we just train muscle, muscle, muscle. So what I'm saying is strength training has this big gap that we, it's not that what we did before was wrong. It was, we had an incomplete picture of anatomy. The anatomy that people use to create exercises and training was based on simple muscles, AKA the bicep does this, that that's old anatomy. We've learned a lot since then. And that's dead anatomy. 
So what I want you to think is there's so much more. So if athlete A adds 100 pounds to their trap bar deadlift, but accommodates internally, they lose segmentation, they get poorer quality connective tissue, they're going to, their tissue is going to blow up and then they're going to get injured. And then what's the value of that 500 pound deadlift? Nothing. Right. And I'm unfairly picking on the power lifts because they're easier. I could pick on anything, but it's because we're not thinking about training as adaptation and adaptation doesn't happen at the external level with the nervous system it happens at the internal level with the biological parts and bits that you have. Those are trainable. Well, I think, I think the other thing here that sort of underpins what you're saying, and, and maybe this references a few of the comments I don't recall exactly, but in order to get to that level of, I guess I'll call it clarity with your programming, it, it demands a coach that can think critically and can program individually because, you know, I, I think again, that's one of the nice, um, mental traps that we can fall into with, with powerlifting specifically in this example, but, you know, insert any training philosophy, but any domain, yes, exactly. Exactly. Each one of those provides for you as a coach, assumedly all the, all the puzzle pieces. So you don't have to think really, you can just say, Oh, well, like this is the system that we're doing. The system has played itself out successfully with this many thousands of athletes. Ipso facto, the system works. And I think one thing that we can do as coaches is, you know, don't look at the thousand athletes that that system worked for. Look at the 10,000 athletes that that system didn't work for, because for every, you know, sprinter that gets the gold medal in the Olympics using some particular system of training, there's hundreds and thousands of sprinters that didn't make it there using that same system. And I think powerlifting falls into that same trap because it's very nice and easy to think of strength training as three lifts a particular rep scheme, a particular, you know, volume across the week, a particular frequency plug and play. Oh, look, I just created a program. This is me doing my job. Go work out. I think that it, it doesn't allow for the nuance that you're talking about, which is, you know, we really get down to the level of the individual athlete and we start looking at individual adaptations. I will caveat here. Cause I think this is an important note and it depends on the environment. Different coaches are operating in in tactical there are spaces in tactical where coaches are in a position to individualize fairly extensively. And then there are situations in tactical where a coach is responsible for hundreds of athletes may not see them at each workout. There's sure. rapid turnover and all this stuff. So I, I sometimes think about those situations as like you, you need to apply like aspirational individualization. Like you kind of need to teach others how to individualize for themselves to a certain degree in those situations. So we can't necessarily always expect every coach in every situation to apply this level of like individualization of training to the tactical professional. And obviously there's tons of tactical professionals, probably many listening to this who don't even have access to a coach in the first place. And this probably went over their head to a significant degree. And that's another <laughs> whole problem to deal with. Well, too. people, yeah, people are probably yelling at their radios right now. But one thing I would add to that is yes, completely valid point. A lot of coaches in this space, especially now that like conventional sized forces are rolling this stuff out. Like you don't have the ability to individualize. That's completely fine. What you can do though is, and again, something we've talked about before, you can set constraints for your training. So you can prescribe a movement pattern. It doesn't have to be an exercise and you can give an athlete. Well, I mean, assuming you've kind of educated them for a little bit, but you can give an athlete the ability to self-select what's going to go into different places in their program. And I think that's another thing that coaches have a tough time with is surrendering some of the decision-making of the programming to their athletes, because we're, we're trained to think that the coach, you know, re receives the athlete and then disappears into their magical cave and produces the magical program and goes out and gives it to them and then watches them get better across a 12 week squat cycle. When I think the tactical space demands somebody who can provide constraints and then trust that the athlete can handle those. And the job becomes more about education and management versus, you know, prescribe and watch. Well, yeah. And to go on that, like, obviously you're right. You're always dictated by if there's a thousand people versus one, but I will say this over my, over my years, you know, I've been in this industry and coach for over 15 years I'll tell you right now, if, if we had a weekly allowance or budget when it comes to adaptations, 
well, if obviously this is reductionist, uh, old reductionist, but uh, if we had strength, if we had work capacity, if we had cardiovascular conditioning and we had joint health, which two buckets are going to get most of the adaptation currency for the week? I'm telling you right now, I don't know about you guys throughout my career. The last two things that are going to get trained seriously are aerobic conditioning and end range joint health. Those are the first two things people will abandon or they've already worked out 60 minutes. They spent their intensity, they spent their stress, their body has no ability to adapt and they just do because uh, person X posted a cool hip mobility. So I'm not, I understand that that's not everyone, but I will say of the, if, if we kind of break it down to four, I don't see many people spending any stress in end range mobility work or flexibility work. Are there outliers? Yes. Are there tons of people? Yes. Everyone's lining up to lift heavy weights and get jacked for sure. Or do a hard circuit, like a high intensity circuit, which is great. Those are great. I'm just saying, when is the stress getting spent in the other areas of the most that gets neglected the most? It is going to be those two, in my opinion. That's my opinion from just, I've worked in gyms 12 hours a day for like 15 years. Uh, that's the last thing people are doing is long duration cardio and end range joint mobility at a serious level. Well, we talked about that. I mean, geez, this was probably our second episode, I think, or third, like the discussion. And, and this gets to some of the comments and some of the things we want to talk about anyway. So I guess, I'll, you know, we're kind of bringing it back around to the powerlifting piece. Perfect. Are tactical athletes, is that an endurance sport or is that a strength sport? And, and the point that we were making, I think back then, and I don't think it's changed, at least not for me, is it is an endurance activity. You have a strength component and you need to be strong, but you can set a ceiling on strength. Like you can be strong enough to be effective as a tactile athlete. There's not really a ceiling on the aerobic side of things. That's not to say that you just add miles and miles and miles and miles, but there's not really a negative return on investment when it comes to time and time spent developing your aerobic base. And I think Taylor, a point you made earlier, it's like, if you can deadlift 400 pounds, is it worth spending adaptation currency and time to jump to 500 the same way it might be to take that same amount of time and do some additional zone two training or to work on some speed training? Because at the end of the day, combat and warfare is about enduring things. And if you have the robust aerobic base, arguably you're better positioned to, you know, quote unquote, compete at that sport. So some of the comments that I saw, some of the arguments that were made was like, oh, I'd take the guy that can deadlift 600 pounds over the one that can run a six minute mile or something like that. I would, I would fundamentally disagree with that. I don't think I would take it so far as to say like, oh, if he can run a five minute mile, but he can only deadlift hundred pounds. Like, of course that guy's going to suck when it comes time to like drag somebody off the battlefield but I don't think that we can just unequivocally say stronger is better at the expense of everything else. Well, I think they even took a look at that. So e even when it came to pre buds, right. Um, when it came to uh, buds prep, they, they took a long look. This was over many years of people heading into buds and they kind of did all the same thing, you know, trap our deadlift, power move, running, and they were looking for correlation with success with buds, which every individual organization is going to do. What exercises make you successful in selection? Rangers, buds, you know, special warfare, all that. Um, and what they found was something that we've been talking about. So they found that the people who had the highest chances of passing buds were the most aerobically fit and actually were successful in the broad jump. The best predictor of success was that you were highly conditioned. Now, whether I know people are going to get to the point, well, do you have to do that running? I know you guys have talked about that on other podcasts and stuff, but highly conditioned, aerobically able to endure, and the broad jump, which is an interesting one, right? Um, then it was the trap bar or whatever the deadlift. But what they found was with the deadlift and pull ups, that once you got strong, there was a higher chance of selection. But then once you got I don't think too strong is the right word, but <laughs> you're starting to spend more currency to get marginal gains, right? Where you should be spending it somewhere else is as the deadlift got heavier, as someone got over 25 pull-ups, they actually had a worse rated selection. So of course there's a bare minimum. No one's arguing that that's like, no one in here says, yeah, I think you should be able to run 30 miles, but not even like do an RDL with the bar. No one is arguing that. 
But what it was interesting, and that was, I believe, over like eight to 10 years, they looked. So the number one factor was aerobic fitness in the run. And it's just uncomfortable because generally strength coaches tend to avoid stuff they suck at, they hate personally, and they know it would invest, take a lot of time, effort, and energy to actually get good at. So once again, back to my point, why do most strength coaches not program end range mobility and long duration, low intensity cardio? Because they hate it themselves, they suck at it themselves, and they don't want to spend the next five to 10 years actually getting good at it because they can squat, hinge, and pull average people to make them better in an external pattern lift. That's just my opinion. And I know that's good. People are going to be typing the comments like, who is this guy? <laughs> people are going to be strolling through my page and they're going to try to find my big three lifts. And they're going to be like, I don't see him lifting barbells. His opinions don't matter. Guaranteed. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> so I do want to, speaking of scrolling back through your stuff, I want to set you up for a comment that I think ties in nicely with this. And before we brought you on, I creeped your page a little bit, found some of the stuff you were talking about. There's some interesting stuff I want to pull out. And one is you mentioned the idea of what I would essentially call the reverse interference effect. It's not strength training interfering with like cardio gains or cardio training interfering with strength gains. It is the phenomenon where a lack of aerobic capacity, a lack of conditioning interferes with your ability to conduct a sufficient amount of strength training and then recover from it. I thought that was like a, a worthwhile point to underline for the audience here. Yeah. Let's get this out of the way. Uh, we don't recover anaerobically. <laughs> Thank you for saying <laughs> that. Almost end of discussion right there. We don't recover anaerobically and all training is aerobic. Uh, if you remove oxygen, good luck working. Uh, even if you do a 30 second sprint on an airdyne, if you look at like a moxie device, that's measuring muscle oxygenation, Oh, there we Drew, did I just sit so, down? I'm, so, I'm just you know so that. happy. So, so even happy if you look at Moxie, yeah. right, you're going to see you're utilizing oxygen and sprint like crazy. It's just that someone like Hussein Bolt can clip off oxygen so fast he seems anaerobic. That's another time, and I'm sure sounds like you guys are, all, are already on this page. So you don't recover anaerobically. So th that that is a key point. Like you're not sitting in your bed at night and your heart rate's 185 and you're burning through sugar. So we are all, we are all constrained by the fact that we recover aerobically. So you might be a power lifter. And if you've made it this far and you're not hating this conversation, um, <laughs> you might be saying, well, they're saying if I run, it's going to make me lift more and stuff. No, 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 no. Running is going to remove what's limiting you from working more throughout the week. So we're not saying go run as a power lifter because like, you know, you know, we're these zone two zealots. It, it's more because you don't run into too many people, even in the operational field who are like, you know, running like sub 18 minute 5Ks. Uh, people are, generally have a lot of room to grow. And especially people have spent time doing a lot of occlusion work, a lot of high intensity training, right? We know those people are going to benefit. So the funniest thing about it is the fact that like people think that cardio is going to rob you of your strength gains, strength gains, strength is going to rob you of your cardiovascular gains. It's like, we haven't even got ABC one, two, three. It's like you suck at recovery. Like, and think about all the, all the recovery tools, the massage guns, the foam rollers, the CBD, the e-stims. It's like, you know, what's your number one recovery tool, a strong aerobic system. So you can't talk to me and say, oh, well, sleep is king for when it comes to recovery. Well, how does sleep accomplish recovery? Via blood flow. <laughs> so blood, so, so everyone says nutrition, hydration, and sleep is king. Well, those are all, those all have to be like through the context of blood flow, right? The water, the nutrients have to pass through the blood. So if you have poor oxygenation of tissues, good luck recovering quick. And I don't care if you wear a whoop, it's not going to work. So if you're a strength athlete and you hate cardio, you shouldn't because you're the, if you say you hate cardio, you're saying you hate recovering quick. I, I think it, I'm, I'm trying to think through this analogy that you, you, we've had Scott Johnston on the podcast twice now, and he has written on this. It's sort of, the oh, sand. No way. yeah, he, this, this sandcastle analogy, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it through exactly what you're referencing, which is kind of the volume and intensity thing and, and dry sand is volume and, and water is intensity. And I think the point that you're getting at to sort of simplify it for people 
if you don't build this base of dry sand, you can dump as much water on the thing as you want. You're never going to have a big enough structure, a big enough sandcastle, which is ultimately what we're after when it comes to training is just building the sandcastle. It's about the proper dosage of the two things. And by spending more time building up this robust aerobic system, you can accomplish more work, you know, whatever work means to you, whether that's powerlifting or whether that's anything else, you can accomplish more of that because you've built a broad enough base to pile on more intensity, more water to have a bigger sandcastle. So again, like, sorry, Scott, I know I took that and stole it from you and took it away from running and applied it to something more broad. But I think it, I think it makes the point Taylor that you're making, which is that by introducing more cardiovascular training, whether that's running or biking or whatever, you're allowing yourself to be able to accomplish more work because you're able to recover better. Well, I, I love that example, and I'm familiar with Scott's work. Um, to 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 add to your uh, example, we can also look at the heart in terms of internal accommodation. So, if I think about length when it comes to connective tissue as being a limiter internally when it comes to outputting force, I can also think of the heart eccentrically when it comes to the left ventricle. So, if I spend all my adaptation stress doing maximal strength training where I'm creating arterial occlusions above 90% of MVC, maximal voluntary contraction, and I'm occluding, I'm increasing the thickness of the heart wall. And potentially, remember, like we talked about the example, if I'm able to discharge more force, but my connective tissue in capsular tissues don't come with it, something's going to blow up. The connective tissue, that's where people blow their Achilles, their patellar tendon. So now let's think of the heart. So if we put all this stress on the heart and the heart wall thickens, that's internal, internal accommodation because we need an increase in thickness and an increase in diameter or else we're actually accommodating internally. So weightlifting actually imposes the opposite demands of cardiovascular training on the heart, but that can be offset if we offset accommodation, which is adaptation. So that is where we have to do that low intensity work and it has to have a high cycle rate. So I'm sorry, the circuits, the Metcons, that's not going to count. So once again, when we see people in the gym, they are doing powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, bodybuilding, and CrossFit. I ask, when are people doing the two hours of zone two and the end range mobility work? So it, like I said, I just view as internal accommodation if someone is not actually developing their cardiovascular system through low intensity aerobic work. Because you can think of that structurally at the heart or peripherally, uh, sorry, in the peripheral uh, when it comes to the blood, uh, the blood flow, the capillaries, the veins and arteries, all that stuff, excuse me, new structures. Peripherally. <laughs> I, I butch that every time. Perif- peripherally. It's Perif- a big word. It's a Harvard word. Sorry. That's going to be our new warm up before podcast to get the <laughs> peripherally. Yeah. Sorry. So for instance, if you add five pounds of muscle mass, but you do not condition that tissue, you're accommodating internally, right? Because you just added more mass and now it's less conditioned. So that's mm-hmm. once again, a problem. But if people just think more muscles better, you could make someone more jacked physically, but they're actually, their work capacity just went down. That's another thing to think of that no one would think of. Just watch any UFC fight and watch Nate Diaz, who looks like, I mean, I, I hate to say this cause he'll come punch me in the face, but like, he's not a fit looking dude but he is optimized for what he needs to do. And and people are like, well, like, why is the Jack guy not crushing this guy? It's like, well, cause that guy's, that guy's very efficient at what he's doing. More muscle requires more oxygen. You get tired more quickly, blah, 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 blah. Same exact situation. Sorry, Nate Diaz. And there's multiple ways of expressing strength. Not all of it is muscular. Mm-hmm. The ability to stress stiffen through connective tissue, a rock climber, rock climbers, not looking like a bodybuilder. Some of them are jacked, but that a lot of them are just lanky good dudes, but they are stronger than you yeah. could ever imagine. Google Adam Andra. He has the longest neck you've probably ever seen. He's lanky as hell, but he can hang by a pinky nail yeah. and absolutely crush his rock climbing. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, Alex. I know I'm appreciating this because now Drew's talking about rock climbing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a tangent though, because once again, people only think about, oh, okay, let's do TRX rows. They don't think let's do connect. It's going to allow me better grip strength to display my deadlift more. I, I think it's right on there, right? Once again, squat hinge, push pull, five by five, three by ten, barbell go heavier. 
that we're so trapped in that thought process. It's not wrong because for most people, everything's right. That's, I mean, there's an important takeaway in the, in the statement that for most people, everything's right. I think that messes up a lot of this because if you're talking about like gen pop interventions, basically any intervention is going to work. And yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to shout out Nate Palin here. I know we said we wouldn't say who said what comments, but I will shout out Nate because one, he's a friend of the show. And two, I think it's an astute comment. And then Alex, I'll transition to you, but take what's useful and discard the rest. I think that, I mean, again, back to the powerlifting piece, we're not here to bash powerlifting. There are components of powerlifting that are useful. There's good research in powerlifting, but to just assume that squat bench deadlift, like, I mean, Taylor, to your point, this many reps, this many sets is the way, like you're just, you're missing the mark. So on that note, and to bring it to a close a little bit, and I'm going to skip over something from the comments because there is a huge, a huge portion of the comments, like a concerningly large portion of the comments were debates about back squat versus front squat and bench versus overhead press versus weighted dips and whatever, whatever. <laughs> and I'm, I'm frankly going to skip over that whole part. And I'm going to ask Taylor, are we missing the point on a lot of these fitness conversations? Cause they so often seem to come down to debates over whose system is better or which exercise is better. And it, it seems like we're not talking about the things that actually matter. <laughs> I mean, we all get lost in our, we, we have systems, we have mentors, we have experiences that are all going to guide and shape what we think and how we, how we do training and how we assess and how we make decisions, and how we program. So yeah, once I think the point to always remember is like I said, everyone thinks their stuff works because they generally haven't worked with people who have actually achieved a high enough level where you find out what works and what doesn't. I've had the opportunity where I worked with world champions and I did stuff and it made them worse. That is a wake up call. Most, most strength coaches haven't experienced that. And I think what happens is people get lost in simply they say, well, operators have to pick up stuff. So we're going to create this pattern movement and then we're going to coach it. So it looks a certain way. And then we're going to prescribe random sets and reps, maybe at percentages. And then we're going to take them to failure quite often. And then the barbell goes up. We're so concerned about the measure, the outcome measure being a particular exercise and lift. We've lost the true outcome measure, which is the particular person. You can make a person better at bench, better at kettlebell swing, and they actually are less of themselves. And strength is specific. It is not simply more weight on the bar. So we should think of strength training as adaptation or strength signaling, not um, the deadlift will magically give me everything I need from range of motion to connective tissue to control to spinal segmentation. It just doesn't work that way. We made up exercises. All this stuff is made <laughs> up. The most important thing is adaptation. If you do a, a pull-up and you don't get the adaptation that makes that person more anti-fragile and more resilient, and they are accommodating, you're not winning. Just because you did a squat or a pull that day, that, that's all people think. Okay, I checked the hinge box. I checked the upper body press box. Now, when you have 10,000 people, of course, you got to do what's simple but that doesn't mean that's what's right or that's what's going to be specifically best for that person. Well, that was an awesome way to close. I think well, I was just going to, I was going to add one thing to this and it's, it's, it's almost a call to action maybe for coaches. And I've made this point before this idea of first principles versus analogy, because ultimately what we're talking about when we talk about systems, fitness systems, it's, it's, it's mental constructs that allow you as the coach to navigate the process of coaching more efficiently, which is thinking by analogy. And I'll, I'll, I'll benchmark this right now. So we include it in the, in the show notes, but if you Google first principles, Elon Musk, he has a great video talking about building batteries for Tesla's and what it really means to break down a battery to like it's bare minimum. That would be first principles and then build up a business model from there. And I think strength and conditioning, specifically tactical strength and conditioning, and coaches in tactical strength and conditioning need to do that same exercise because if you come into this with systems that you think work because they worked in a previous position that you were at or it worked for you or it's worked for you know a dozen or so athletes that you've trained in the past that is analogous thinking that you're bringing into a new a new landscape and what you instead have to do is say okay what does the tactical athlete archetype demand of me 
is it squat, bench, and deadlift? Or is it, to Taylor's point, adaptation in this direction? And if that becomes your first principles and you start to build a system with those principles in mind, you you might arrive at powerlifting, but you would probably arrive at something very different. And I don't think a lot of coaches are really prepared to reach a point with an athlete where, hey, maybe for this particular person, 10 reps makes more sense. Oh, well, holy shit. That's not what the Russians did. Okay, fine. Like, that's okay. You've, you've reasoned your way to this solution. Same with the endurance stuff. Same with the work capacity stuff. It might look like some things you're familiar with, but it might look like something completely different. And I think as coaches, we have to be okay with that reality. And that is me finishing my soapbox. We can finish the episode now. I have nothing left to say. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, you want any closing comments? Or are we good? I like if I went and asked a hundred strength coaches, okay, they're doing an ex- exercise. What adaptation are you going after? Strength. <laughs> well, what type of strength and what tissue and what speed? And people just strength is we've, we've, we just think strength in this external environment of made up lifts that are patterned. And then we just put them together. You got to break free of the mold. You, you got to break free of strength, just being this one arbitrary thing, you know, the whole, you can't go wrong getting strong. Well, actually you can, <laughs> because strength isn't this universal term. So I want people to change their definition of what they think strength is. Because if I ask you, what is that adaptation you're trying to get out of this exercise? People say strength. I'm like, that's not an adaptation. You have to get specific. Tell me. And most people don't know. Well, I think to put a bow on this, a couple of things. One, if you respond in mass to inflammatory posts that Alex put Alex puts up on Mops and Mo's, we might do an entire podcast episode about it. Uh, two, Taylor, thank you very much for coming on and having a conversation with us. This has been fascinating and hopefully leads to more conversations with more coaches. And then three, if anything inflamed you or triggered you or pissed you off, don't slide into my Instagram, slide into Alex's Instagram at Mops and Mo's. Uh, He loves to receive these types of things. He loves to engage with people. Thanks for tuning in. This has been another week of Mops and Mo's. Hey, Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.